Are you a plants guy, Scott? Plants is in like green things that grow in my house? Yeah, you got it. I am... My wife is a plant person. <laughs> I used to be. I used to keep tons of plants in my house, and I actually grew up in an acreage, and we oh. had like a two-acre garden. Sure. So I, I, have, I, have lived, I have lived among the plants, but I would say currently at this present moment, I am not a plant person. Okay. It's good to know. Are you a plant guy? I like a good fern. Okay. Uh, I got a little cactus on my desk. I like a plant. Nice, nice, nice. So there are a lot of plants that will kill you, Mm -hmm. but few are as famous for doing so as Nightshade. Are we talking like Dungeons and Dragons here? Because it sounds like it. (laughs) I mean, it's probably in Dungeons and Dragons. That's the thing about Nightshade, a.k.a. Atropa Belladonna, a.k.a. the Deadly Nightshade. It's very famous. I don't know if you know what it looks like. It's this little green leafed plant with like, pretty purple flowers and he's frankly like quite delicious looking little shiny blackberries but don't eat them because it is famously very poisonous Mm -hmm. there are a lot of other poisonous plants you got your hemlocks you got your foxgloves but nightshade has the reputation it's in the odyssey it's in shakespeare it's in roman myths it's part of salem era stories about witches potions uh, call it whatever you want, Belladonna Nightshade. It's like a shorthand for poison and death across centuries of literature and stories right up to, as you said, Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> but Deadly Nightshade has this other association. The first part of the name, Atropa Belladonna, Atropa refers to one of the three like Greek fates, the people that would like cut the strings to end a person's life. The first part of the name refers to death, the poison part of the plant. But the second part of the name is Belladonna, which in Italian means beautiful woman. Mm -hmm. And that is because this plant, this shorthand for death, also had associations with aesthetic beauty. It was used as a cosmetic. This is kind of wild, but they would make eye drops out of it. Interesting. Because those eye drops would make your pupils dilate. And that was apparently considered very hot at the time. <laughs> also, don't try this. There's a reason they stopped. <laughs> but, but you have this one plant with these two deep, long associations. Poison and aesthetic beauty. Death and art. Which makes it a really cool name for the subject of this episode which is a piece of software attempting to poison a system built on a foundation of and arguably producing visual art. I'm just interested in protecting human creativity in some sense, right? This is, I feel like the companies or even government are taking a a fairly short-sighted view on AI, right? Of course, these are awesome. They are able to copy style, generate images. Uh, but what I see is if we keep going down this route, uh, say, you know, they get better and the art is getting replaced. And that more or less kind of mark the end of human creativity, at least in some aspects. And it's unclear where are we going to go from there. That was Sean Shan, a researcher at the University of Chicago. And we had a conversation with him recently, didn't we? Lovely guy. Lovely guy. Lovely guy. Great chat. He is part of a team working on a suite of tools for artists to be able to turn their art into a kind of poison, a nightshade, which is why they named it that, for generative AI models. You apply these tools to a piece of digital art, 
And the art looks normal to a human. But if it's ever ingested by an AI model, it will hurt it. Like poison. Hence the name, Nightshade. Not only will the AI model not recognize what's in the image and fail to like scrape the necessary information to imitate it, it's a poison in the sense that it will get it actively wrong. The artist creates an image of an elephant. The system doesn't just fail to see, oh, that's an elephant. It goes, oh, that's a little kitty cat. And so the next time it makes an image of a cat, there's a slightly better chance that it will have a trunk. That's the basic idea. Does that make sense? I love this. I love this idea. I, lo- I love that they did this. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a fun one. I really enjoyed this conversation. So here's our chat with Sean Shan about Nightshade, their earlier tool Glaze, which you'll hear us talking a bit about in the intro, poisoning AI systems, and David versus Goliath tech projects. Here on Hacked. Sean, thank you so much for sitting down with us to uh, to chat about this project. Of course. So I'm a layperson. Feel free to correct me as we go. Um, I want to get to Nightshade. I want to get to Glaze and your team. But before we do, there was this sort of overarching question that snuck up on me as I was reading about your projects. When you train an AI model like Midjourney or Dolly on an image, you feed an image into it, what kind of information is it getting out of that image? How should we understand what it's learning about an image when you feed one into it? I see. Yeah. So at a very kind of high level, uh, so this model takes in not only images, but they also take in corresponding tags that kind of describe these images, right? If you have, I don't know, like a Van Gogh painting, you would say this is a painting from Van Gogh of a landscape. So what it does during the training process is basically associate, all right, so Van Gogh is the name and... Next time I get a question for generating a Van Gogh image, I should produce something similar to the image that I've been seeing, right? So specifically how they work, they call diffusion model. I'm not getting into the details, but uh, it is very powerful. However, that each individual training point, they don't have a huge impact on the entire models, right? So if your training data only appear only once, it probably doesn't have too much impact. Uh, but there are many images that has to be shared many freq- very frequently online. So also get memorized. The model will really kind of memorize pieces of that image and try to perhaps reproduce it when you prompt mm-hmm. an image out. So that's kind of at a very high level how this uh, model works. And then specifically, because I saw this term come up quite a bit in your research, what is style mimicry in generative AI? Is it the same thing as just feeding one image in? It, what is style mimicry for anyone that doesn't understand? Yeah, style mimicry is something more uh, targeted, perhaps, is, you know, the cases where I go online and see this artist I really like, right? I just want to get her or his, his painting, but I don't want to pay him, right? So what I can do is I can use these AMR to mimic their artwork. And I can do this with just downloading some images from their Instagram or their website, just need pay images. And then I, they call it fine-tune this model. Basically, just means you have a base model you just train a little bit more on that additional 10 images. And now the new model will be able to basically output arbitrary content for from the same artists, right? Very much mm-hmm. the same style as how the artists paint them. Right? Maybe like the quality is not as good, but oftentimes we see this as good enough 
to to replace the artists for many types of commissions. Sure. So that's kind of the stuff we were talking about. Yeah. Interesting. So hypothetically, an artist who might have had to get a commission from someone wouldn't need to get that commission if that person was able to use one of these systems to create a, a piece of art that was to a lay person pr- pretty close to indistinguishable. Exactly. And and it perhaps is not no longer hypothetical. Right? There are cases, I think, <laughs> artists get replaced by these models. So like, uh, it gets really bad. If you like some artists today, they search their own name on, on Google, for example. Like the first thing that pop up is not their website anymore. It's like the model <laughs> that mimic their style. And and you know, if, if I'm a customer, there's absolutely no reason for me to go to the artist, wait a couple months, spend a couple hundred dollars to do that. Right? I can just use a model to do that right away. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I haven't. I have more stuff I want to get to, but it, it reminds me of one of the first things I think most people do you know, a year ago when a lot of people got access to these models for the first time, the first thing you do is you have it generate something totally abstract or just a concept. But inevitably you come to that question of, oh, I'd like this artist. Could you do that same prompt in the style of that artist? And I think that's the moment most people realize the full implications of, you know, this this tech we're just figuring out for the first time. Yeah, exactly. So if a person wanted to, let's say, deceive that model, to create an image that the model would misunderstand in some kind of way, uh, to create data that would, uh, to borrow the phrase, poison it to prevent such mimicry, how would they go about doing that? And I guess to get to your project, how did you go about doing that? <laughs> yeah, so I think for us, uh, so we, the product we call Glaze, uh, disrupting kind of uh, style mimicry uh, step. So the idea is fairly straightforward. Is okay, the constraint we have is we can't change the piece of art too much. Right? We can add some small changes. Hopefully that's not too disruptive. But what we can do is we can carefully craft these small changes to you know, to confuse these AM models, right? So they are very smart, but these AM model has uh, a very different way to see images compared to how us humans see images. And we can leverage that, basically that gap to adding some small changes that are very small to human eyes, but are very disruptive to how these models see images. And so this kind of how we do with clay is we add some ch- small changes to us humans, same image, but the model see that image will saying, okay, this is actually a completely different style from a completely different artist. So of course it will not be able to steal or do the style mimicry as mm-hmm. it normally would. You use the phrase how they see the images. Yeah. Earlier on in the conversation, I asked, you know, what did these models see? And we, we talked a bit about the text associated with it, the way that they're tagged and the sort of human reinforcement element. But I, I guess when you're changing what the image sees without changing what a human sees, this might be too abstract a question, but what is it seeing? What is it seeing that's different from what I'm seeing? Or is there a way that I as a human will even really understand that? So I think uh, one analogy I, I tend to give is you can think of this as a UV light, right? So like machine learning can be a UV light system. And of course, they turn a mass number of pixel values. so they see certain things we don't really see, right? So some, in some sense, open UV lights, see a lot of hidden things there. Right? That means we can snuck into a lot of changes on the normal kind of light frequency. But to us, it doesn't really change much. But once you open the UV lights, like these models, you will see so much different changes and it was super disruptive to how these models can understand uh, images. But g- going a little bit more technical, these models are basically functions, right? They map raw pixel vectors into a bunch of high-level 
not very like black box features that they use to reason to generate different art. And the feature space can sometimes be interpretable. Like you know, Van Gogh images will be similar to other similar artists' images. But beyond that, the models that are setting space is very hard for us humans to understand. Uh, but because of that, we can also add in some small changes to really disrupt that space because we know the exact function that's being used to you know, process images. Hmm. Given that you're changing essentially imperceivable values to the human eye, but there are still values being changed kind of in the, in the image binary, how hard would it be to then train the AIs to identify those manipulations and bypass them? That's a great question. So, yeah, so since we released Glaze, there are quite a few kind of these type of attempts uh, to train the AI to recognize them. Uh, so what I'm going to say is it is generally hard to do that without sacrificing its normal performance. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, kind of without going into too much detail on this, uh, so this is, so these type of small changes is a vulnerability that uh, kind of researchers have identified for a, a very long time, right? These models have these problems that if you add some small changes, you'll very easily to confuse these models. So there are quite a few research kind of, you know, how do we make ro- model robust against these changes? And uh, in general, kind of after like five years of that line of research, it kind of agreed on uh, the fact this is very hard to do. It seems that this is some fundamental property of this model. And uh, so, so in order to be robust to these changes, you basically have to sacrifice a little bit of how your model performs. Uh, so we did some tests in, in our research. Uh, and in the case of generative models, the sacrifice is quite significant. Right? And the reason really is just because you really have to be super precise to get a very high quality mm-hmm. artwork. Right? And, and if you change a little bit, you start outputting some real artifacts and that's not very usable. Mm. So there's not like a... There's not like a global fingerprint to glaze that it can start to identify and just kind of remove or extract that that uh, malicious data from? Yeah, so I think there are people trying that. Uh, mm-hmm. What we see has been failed or only work in very specific cases. And the re- reason is that we kind of proactively thought about this, so we add quite a bit of randomness into this whole glazing process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All you want is to meet your security and compliance requirements. But your business technology keeps changing. Cyber threats emerge every day. More regulations apply to you now than ever before. And your IT resources remain limited. The Center for Internet Security can help. 
At CIS, we work to create a safer world for people, businesses, and governments through collaboration and innovation. Using a community-driven consensus process, we work with IT professionals and volunteers around the world to develop and maintain security best practices. These resources save you time, money, and effort wherever you are on your cybersecurity journey. We also work with U.S. state, local, tribal, and territorial government organizations to share information with one another so they're stronger together. Join us today in creating confidence in the connected world. Visit cisecurity.org to play your part. I'm curious to learn more. So you brought up Glaze, which, as I understand it, is sort of the artist-facing tool. It's the thing that you can put an image into to give it these qualities that are going to uh, cause it to be misinterpreted by an AI. I also understand there's Nightshade. Can you talk a little bit about these tools, where one begins and one ends, how they work? Uh, take me through that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Nightshade is a direct kind of follow-up to Glaze. You try to improve, do something more. So, uh, you know, if we take the AI company perspective, right? So if we look at this, and the worst case with Glaze is, okay, there's some data I just cannot learn from. That's not too big a problem, right? Because there are just so many other art out there are not protected by Glaze, and there's so many, you know, historic artists I can trust. those. So it's not too big a problem. Uh, so for Nightshade, what we did is, okay, we can take this one step further is if you try on these Nightshaded data, uh, what happens is you will not only not be able to learn anything from these data, but you will also corrupt the base model that you already have. And so corruption can come in many forms, but we're showing the paper that you can basically have the model to output a cat when you ask for a dog or you know all sorts mm-hmm. of weird stuff you can have the model to do. And this will have a pretty big impact on you know, how trustworthy your model is. If you put out there, you can't even generate a basic uh, concept, right? So that's kind of uh, what Nightshade does. Oh, cool. So Glaze is just about making it so it can't read. It, it's turning it into text in a language that it can't read anymore. Nightshade is like, no, this is actually going to deceive it. You're looking at an image of a cat, but y- what you're seeing is an elephant. So the next time we ask you to produce a cat, it might have a trunk. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Oh, that's very fascinating. So you're poisoning the well, essentially. Basically, <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Interesting. What would it take, either of these models, for them to be really useful at scale in the real world? Where do these models and, see large social media platforms where a ton of the data that's being scraped to train these uh, models are coming from, what role do they have to play? How does this go from being a tool that an individual artist has to upload an image into, get it back before they upload it somewhere else? How does it get more useful than that current state? Yeah, absolutely. So we are, well, we're fairly early kind of talking to all of sure. this, but uh, so currently the model is basically, as you said, artists will you know, download a tool and generate, take quite a long time, so it's not very scalable. Uh, but we have been talking to our platforms. These are shared platforms. Some are very pro-AI saying, yeah, it's great. But there are quite a few of them saying you, they should protect the copyright of their artists who share the image online. So we're right now working with one of the leading platforms in the space. And I think they already start integrating Glaze uh, into the, the platform. So every time they share an image online, you basically have the option of Glaze it or, or not. So that's kind of uh, where we're going. And we'll also talk to Quite a few entertainment and gaming companies, they're in a little bit sort of weird position. They like 
they want to use AI because you'll you'll save their cost. But on the other hand, they have a huge artist uh, you know, base sure. that they don't want to piss them off. So <laughs> I, th- I think they are a little bit tricky. So we're talking to some of them. Uh, we're talking the right game a little bit, but like they're also interested in integrating Glaze inside. Uh, so also, the entertainment company has basically the exact same problem. I think, you know, Disney recently sent a letter to Microsoft saying that you can't train our Disney characters, for example. So, like, they're obviously very interested in protecting their IP, but uh, it's unclear their true incentive was what's going to be the future for, for them. So, yeah, there's a really interesting um, kind of tension that you bring up there where. Presumably, some of these companies would love the idea of not having to pay the labor cost of a bunch of artists to generate some of these assets. But I would bet more than that, they would be really angry that you can type Mickey Mouse into a box and have it produce pretty good images of their very valuable intellectual property. And here you come with a product that goes right down the middle of that. Exactly. Do you feel like you're wading into the middle of a kind of a, 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 a pretty long-term fight that's going to be playing out in that intersection of tech and intellectual property. Like you're sort of, you're setting yourself up to be right in the middle of that for the foreseeable future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think when we start a project, we absolutely does not expect this at all. But then, you know, once we release, I was like, okay, this is a real problem people are facing and, and you know, everybody is talking the space. But yes, I think uh, right now we're, we're, we're more kind of committed to just be in this space to, Sure. I guess we frame ourselves as, you know, provide technical solutions when there's no regulation really in the space at all, right? Like there are oh, people actively hurting, and we're all waiting on the uh, like the court cases. who are all waiting for, you know, the the legal action to take place. But uh, they're gonna take some time. So the technical solution really should be there to help some of the creators to to at least you know, get by it for the second. Hmm. Um. You brought up regulation. I'm not. I'm definitely not asking you to uh, draft up some regulation on the fly on this podcast. <laughs> but like broad principles, maybe some some sort of like nice to haves, vague stuff. Again, not asking you to write it. What what kind of things? Maybe where do you think it's going to go in terms of regulation? Let's start there. I think it's going to be a little bit hard. I think there are just so many misaligned incentives in the space. Right? There are. You know, of course, we want to protect labor, we want to protect graders, but there's also the aspect of, oh, we have to build the next big AI system before some other country does it, right? So the the discussion around this has been very slow. We'll see how the court cases goes, but, you know, even the court cases went well, there will potentially be new laws from the Senate uh, regulating AI for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And this is only the U.S. and there's, you know, the whole Europe. Europe was going pretty well with AI Act until recently they kind of stopped their bunch of uh, tension around that as well. And then there is Japan and China, which is much more pro-AI. I think Beijing just had a uh, pass a law yesterday say you can copyright uh, AI-generated images and things like that. So so I my take is even in the longer term, I feel it's not very clear. It's going to be a clear cut, right? It's not going to just benefit artists completely. So I feel uh, that's why I feel like technical solution in some sense is useful, but also in some sense technical research can also push for certain regulations, right? Like mm-hmm. if we show, okay, these are how many artists are impacted, are, are carrying, want to protect their tools, uh, protect their art, uh, that may have some implication on the mm-hmm. ongoing legal discussion. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say we need to pass some sort of 
law or regulation that platforms need to do something to images hosted there to prevent them from being scraped without the consent of the creator if that tech doesn't exist. Yeah. Like, exactly. you can't even start that discussion. Interesting. Yeah, or like there's... Uh, similarly, I think there are like a lot of platforms trying to say, let, let me compensate these creators. But like compensating through a model is going to be very hard. How does each training data point contribute to a given generation and things like that? So sure. technically, solution I think in the space is also very important. I can't, yeah. I, I can't help but just see the knock-on effects too of uh, any kind of precedent set in court or legislation because, you know, we're kind of at AI, you know, 1.0 per se. And, and it's only going to get bigger and bigger. Like one of the things that I look at when I see stylistic mimicry, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things I look at when I see stylistic mimicry is like, you know, we're doing images now. We've got some text generating. You know, I can have an AI write me lyrics to a song. I can have AI modify an audio track that I sing to sound like any other artist. We're only a few steps away before I can just be like, hey, write me a Drake song about, you know, dancing in the flowers and it'll be like boom here it is produced and out, out it comes and it's like you know any kind of decisions that they make in the court cases today will impact all the future ai generated content so it's just i i hope that they're weighing you know in the balances how severe some of these decisions will be yeah to the creative class anyway yeah yeah exactly yep yeah. um so you're not working on this alone I'd be curious to know about, like, kind of tell me a little bit about the whole team and it's specifically what kind of, because this seems like such a new thing, what sort of backgrounds are people bringing into this project? Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, it's a little bit weird for us. Even. Like I think we are a traditional research team, so I'm, I'm doing my PhD, doing my master here. And then we start out just as a research project, right? So traditionally, we kind of research in the space of security and privacy of machine learning systems. So a lot of looking at how AI works and when does AI fail, where look at things, you know, how do you make sure AI self-driving car is secure? So we do a lot of that sort of stuff. Uh, but then I think when generative AI really start picking up, we, we start to talk to quite a few artists and then we see how severe the problem is like last year. So like, okay, we should kind of steer our whole kind of project, our whole focus into, you know, protecting artists. And, and the reason really is that we're kind of in a very fortunate position because we study these AI models will study their vulnerability for quite a long time, right? So we're like, okay, we know how to exploit these vulnerability as a protection tool for these artists. So that's kind of how we started. Uh, so the team is fairly small. It has my advisors, my two advisors uh, in the space. They has been doing kind of CS or computer science research for the longest time. And then there's uh, us, me and my two other co-authors, we just doing our PhD, but our background is more on privacy and security of AI systems. And we kind of mm -hmm. share, uh, do more of the generative AI stuff these days. So. I'd, re I'd seen two different numbers floating around for this. Uh, in, in regard to Glaze specifically, yes. I've seen a million, 1.5 million. Roughly speaking, how many artists have used these tools you're working on to date to protect images? Yeah, so we don't have the exact number of how many people are actively using it every day. So we only have the number of how many people downloaded the app from our websites. So I think in July it was 1 million. I think we got to 1.6 million as of, I think last week when I checked. Uh, but this is just a number of, this is a number of full downloads. They download the whole package, download all the resources and perhaps sure. start using it. But uh, yeah, we did not keep track of anything after the download just for, for privacy reasons. Uh, but we also have uh, WebGlaze. It's kind of a service we put up 
forest who doesn't really have a laptop or doesn't have GPUs to run uh, Glaze. Uh, for that, I said we have 3,000 active users, but we have a huge wait list. We haven't really get around to put people on the wait list just because we don't have enough GPUs for the, uh, for the moment. But yeah. If somebody wants to support the project, are you guys taking public support or is it just a, an internal project for the University of Chicago? I think we very recently uh, worked through the university to have a donation platform. So you will go through the university, but a portion will come to us to continue researching the space. Great. You, uh, so you mentioned, you've mentioned protecting artists. You've mentioned technical solutions being really important for figuring out the legal side of things as we move deeper into, you know, the AI era. Beyond those things, I guess just for you personally, why, why do this work? Why, why kind of take on this really long scale battle with these very well resourced companies that have a huge financial incentive to keep these models ticking? Why does this matter to you personally? I think it just okay. I think there are a couple answers, and there are typical answers. Okay, I want to help people. Of course, I want. Sure. There's so much like very rewarding feedback from artists. I working with them just you know, very enjoy that process. But also, I think. Uh, the the kind of the bigger reason really is that I'm just interested in protecting human creativity in some sense, right? This is basically it. I feel like the companies or even government are taking a, a fairly short-sighted view on AI, right? Of course, these are awesome. They are able to copy style, generate images. Uh, but what I see is if we keep going down this route, uh, say, you know, they get better and the artist getting replaced, and that more or less kind of marked the end of human creativity, in, at least in some aspects. And it's unclear where are we going to go from there, because as we see today, these models are not really able to evolve on themselves. Right? They're mostly still feeding or mimicking mm -hmm. existing art. So, so a sad future will just be we stuck with the same type of art for you know hundreds of years, and we can't go back because there's no more artists, there's no more art school sure. left. So I think really want to push for that, just you know, gave artists some leverage in this negotiation to to protect the human creativity at this point. Yeah, you use the phrase protecting human creativity, and it's it is funny how within about four seconds of using one of these things, you're sort of like left with these two competing feelings. One is kind of sort of like the technical awe, and I'm sure as a very technical person, you really are like, wow, this is remarkable what you've managed to achieve. This is catastrophic potentially for human creativity, at least in terms of it being economically viable. There will probably always be someone wanting to pluck on a guitar in their living room. There will always be someone wanting to, to draw on a pad of paper, but whether or not it's a job, a career, something that you can make a living doing, you're immediately struck by how big a threat this incredibly cool tech could be to that as just a thing people can do for a living. I think, so when we started off, like I saw these two, I was like, I was more on the other side. I was oh my God, this is amazing. I can generate, I don't know, like Darth Vader eating sushi or whatever, like whatever I want. And, uh, and, and but I think once we start talking to one more artists, that's specifically, like, every time we give, give some of these talks to like a you know, group of people, Always there are parents come ask us, okay, should I still pay my son's art school tuition? Like, sure. well, these are the questions we start getting. And, and so we're okay, this is very much the, 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 the question that defines the like, human creativity in the future. So, yeah. Okay. My last question for you, for you, Sean, is where, where do you think this goes next? We're having this conversation again in five years. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you, what are the big moments? What, where do you think this goes? That's a great question. 
<laughs> I think it's hard to predict where AI is going to be in five years. But sure. But I think I don't know. I feel like there will be at least some regulation in the space. If we say there's zero right now, I, you know, it may not be great, but but there will be some. And I think a lot of our work just want to fill the gap that regulation cannot catch. Right? Maybe they're able to take care of open AI and stability, but really not the random redditor online. So, so these are the cases technology or understanding can really kind of uh, take in place. But also, I think we are in this kind of a cultural shift with generative AI. Right? Everybody using it. Um, and just to understand how this impacts humanity, maybe for better or maybe for worse, to understand this space a little bit more and build tools to uh, help people to help sh- uh, sh- steer AI to the place that we want it to be. John, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you uh, sitting down with us and chatting about all this. It's a very cool project, and uh, I look forward to seeing where it goes next. All right, thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, take care. All right, take care, Jordan. Thank you, Scott. <laughs>